You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Janet Wright, Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Development of new therapies for cardiac arrhythmias remains a key area of cardiology research. From pharmacotherapies for atrial fibrillation to pacing devices for patients with heart failure. How are current devices promoting more effective monitoring strategies? And looking ahead, where will we see advances in device therapy and arrhythmia management to enhance our capacity to take care of patients? Our guest today is Dr. Charles Kerr, President of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society and Director of the Electrophysiological Program at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. Welcome, Dr. Kerr. Thank you. It's a pleasure. A patient that many of us have seen and are seeing increasingly as our population ages, the patient who on a follow-up office visit is found to be in atrial fibrillation. Walk us through the evaluation of that patient. It certainly is a common problem. I think the initial evaluation is entirely clinical. I think it's important to take a history from the patient very accurately, specifically related to symptoms. Are they limited? Many people feel palpitations and come acutely with atrial fibrillation, but the patient you describe obviously is not as one that is as critically aware, and it sounds as if this patient would be found to be in atrial fibrillation. Many patients, though, do actually have some impairment, and when they're questioned, they do admit that their abilities to exercise have declined, and these are things that should be brought out on history. I think the first question I always ask if I see a patient is, are they at risk? And the biggest risk with atrial fibrillation, of course, is embolization and atrial clot. So I think the first thing I do is try and get a a stratification of risk. I use the CHADS-2 scoring system for risk, taking into account age and other comorbidities such as hypertension, diabetes, presence of heart failure, and previous stroke. The other issue with related to risk is a rapid rate. If the rate is too rapid over prolonged periods of time, then an individual can develop a cardiomyopathy. And so this is an important aspect is to rate their, to get some assessment of what their heart rate is over time. In terms of the workup for that patient, I think that one always wants to look for, for secondary causes. It is reasonable to measure your measure of thyroid function, although it's a relatively uncommon cause of atrial fibrillation. We usually get an echocardiogram to assess the atrial size and ventricular function. Again, this is partially related to risk as well as seeing if there's another etiology. I think it's important to to make sure the patient's been screened for diabetes and hypertension. The next aspect really is to ascertain whether the, going back to the clinical evaluation, whether the patient is symptomatic and how best to manage those symptoms. There are two strategies that one can take in terms of managing atrial fibrillation. One is rate control and the other is rhythm control. In some patients, it's really quite imperative to control their rhythm. The patient who's younger, who's highly symptomatic, feels palpitations and is quite impaired, then rate control is often the correct strategy. If a patient is relatively asymptomatic and the rate is relatively well controlled, then a rate control strategy can be safely undertaken. And in both circumstances, it's really imperative to be certain that appropriate antithrombotic therapy is administered. 
So that would be my initial office approach. And thank you. I think that's a very uh, concise description of the initial approach. As you mentioned, it's remarkable, I think, that some people are not symptomatic at all with atrial fibrillation. And in fact, if a careful auscultation is not performed at that office visit and the radial pulse is the only thing checked at that visit, that could actually be overlooked. Yes, it can be. And uh, particularly in in an older patient whose rate is often not that rapid, the rhythm can be superficially felt to be reasonably regular, and it's not until you actually listen carefully that you can tell there is some irregularity, and this would obviously prompt a performance of an electrocardiogram to confirm your diagnosis. And in those patients that are symptomatic or that have an elevated heart rate that's clearly impairing them, either promoting some pulmonary congestion or increased fatigue, what drugs do you consider first line, and what do you consider to choose those drugs? Well, I, I think that one can undertake a rate or a rhythm control strategy. We know that rate control can be adequate in many people, and I think particularly suited to an older, relatively less active individual and somebody who's been in atrial fibrillation for a prolonged period of time. I, um, I think it, that a rate control strategy is very appropriate. The two drugs that are most appropriate for rate control are calcium channel blockers, such as verapamil or diltiazem or beta blockers. Unfortunately, the beta blockers often do not improve exercise tolerance because the drugs themselves can slow the patient down. And so even though the rate can be slowed, the patient may not feel particularly better. So I tend to go with a calcium channel blocker unless it's a circumstance where a beta blocker would be indicated, such as somebody with a cardiomyopathy. If one decides to go on a rhythm control strategy, Unfortunately, our antiarrhythmic drugs are fraught with side effects and inefficacy, so that we, our armamentarium is really not very good. I think the first-line drugs in a person whose heart was relatively normal would be either, and does not have coronary artery disease, would be a class 1C drug such as propafenone or flecainide, often in conjunction with a rate-controlling drug, or a drug such as sotalol. Those are usually the first-line drugs I would use. The most potent drug, of course, that we have is amiodarone, but the side effects of that agent are sometimes prohibitive, and one does not want a young person probably to be on amiodarone for great lengths of time. The ultimate rhythm control strategy, and this is particularly appropriate for somebody who is quite young, who has a paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and a structurally normal heart, is the potential of a curative ablation procedure, which is becoming progressively more popular. And fortunately, the techniques are becoming more precise and therefore more successful. So I think ablation is a a very good alternative for a person who is looking at long-term treatment and particularly a person with relatively normal heart structurally and paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. I think ultimately ablation will move into, and it is beginning to move into the more long-term atrial fibrillation and in patients with other structural heart disease. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright. Our guest today is Dr. Charles Kerr, President of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society and Director of the Electrophysiological Program at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. We're discussing new advances in treatment of arrhythmias. Dr. Kerr, you mentioned ablation. Could you describe to us the current thinking around the appropriate patient to refer for evaluation for ablation? 
Yeah, but then we're talking about ablation for atrial fibrillation. I think that the ideal patient is a younger patient who has paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, who has very little underlying structural heart disease, and the left atrium is relatively normal in size. Atrial fibrillation is felt to arise in most cases due to triggers that emanate from the muscular cuffs of the pulmonary veins as they empty into the left atrium. And the procedures involved are are quite varied and involve either cauterization and ablation of the actual foci where the signals come from, or more recently, more over the last few years, developed much more aggressive ablation where the pulmonary veins are isolated by encircling lines of ablation around the pulmonary veins. And then more or less carving up of the atrium by creating lines of ablation. Other recent advances have included attention to neuronal plexi in the atrial wall and other markers where there is abnormal electrical or abnormal electrical signals. Unfortunately, the success rate is still remains far from ideal. Probably the overall success rate is in the range of 70 to 80 percent and a high percentage of people require multiple procedures. So it's not a panacea, but certainly there are many patients who do extremely well with the procedure. And how, in that success rate that you mentioned, 70-80%, how is that defined? Success is defined how? That's one of the real issues, is is how do you define it? Some series are suggesting 90-plus percent success rates, but we don't, you know, people have variable follow-ups. If it's purely symptomatic, we also know that some patients are rendered asymptomatic but still have atrial arrhythmias following ablation, and they may be having short runs of of atrial fibrillation. So I think that the definition of success is extremely variable. I mean, the ideal success would be complete absence of any atrial fibrillation, either clinically or by electrocardiogram. I think that it might be acceptable if the episodes of atrial fibrillation became much less frequent and shorter acting and self-terminating, or it might be acceptable if they become asymptomatic, since symptomatic control is probably the primary aim of any therapy for atrial fibrillation other than antithrombotic therapy. And you mentioned that there are multiple approaches to ablation of atrial fibrillation. Do you see some convergence around preferred approaches at this point, or are we still learning? I think we're still learning. I think that we're tending to see a convergence to a fairly wide circumferential left atrial ablation approach and isolation of the pulmonary veins. But I still believe there's still some variability with respect to the aggression that is used, the temperatures, the attention to these neural plexi. So I think there are still some things that we need to work out. And I suspect the procedure in three or four years' time will be substantially different. There's the potential of balloon ablation devices that can be placed into the pulmonary veins with circumferential ablation around the balloons. We just don't know how successful those kinds of strategies are going to be. And tell us about the risk or the complication, both the rates and the types of things that a patient might encounter after an ablation. Yeah, it's not without risk. We always concern ourselves about embolic events occurring during the time, but I think that that is pretty well managed with aggressive anticoagulation during the procedures The other serious risks that occur is tamponade can occur in about 1% of patients. Other potential serious complication is pulmonary vein stenosis. 
if one stays away from the ostea of the pulmonary veins, this can be limited and being careful about the temperatures and the powers that are used. This is a frightening thing when one sees it. People can present with very severe pulmonary sequelae if they get pulmonary vein stenosis that needs stenting. And the most worrisome and potentially lethal complication is a fistula into the esophagus. Fortunately, that is uncommon, and most ablators are very cautious dealing with the posterior wall of the left atrium, which is, of course, uh, completely adjacent to the uh, esophagus. We've been learning more about the management of atrial fibrillation with Dr. Charles Kerr. Dr. Kerr, thank you for being our guest today. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.